I don't often stand in this, uh, in this place, and I think the more I do, the more nervous I get before I do. I don't know uh, if that's a sign of maturity or immaturity, but we're preaching on maturity today, so I'm hoping that the former is the case. Um, open with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 is where our passage begins today. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's going to be on page 1003 of the uh, Pew Bible. Hebrews 5.11 through 6.6 is the passage that we're considering today. And so for someone who doesn't preach very often, to pick probably the most controversial passage in the Bible is probably, uh, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew today. Uh, but we will get to that, uh, that passage that has caused some unrest among believers for a long time, verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews 6. And hopefully we'll land in a place today that is uh, faithful to uh, Hebrews and its context, to the rest of the Bible's teaching, and is also consistent with uh, what we know to be early church practice. So uh, the position that we land on today may not be the one you hold before or after the sermon, and that's okay. Christians, uh, faithful Christians throughout the ages have, have disagreed on this passage, but I will present you with a viewpoint on this that I think makes sense of the, uh, of the text of the rest of New Testament teaching with some historical tie-ins as well. Uh, so our passage today is Hebrews 5:11 through 6:6, and the message is entitled "Moving Toward Maturity." Uh, when I when I get an opportunity to talk like this, especially now that uh, we have four children, it's almost impossible for me to uh, to talk to people without the subject of my children coming up. So I, I sent the guys in the back a a picture I wanted to show you. If you if you'll throw that up there. All right, so the, the picture on the left is completely candid, no photoshopping, no editing, you know, hashtag no filter. You can clearly see that that picture has not been doctored in any way, right? Uh, Ava Rose is just so cute that when you take her picture, hearts just materialize out of, out of thin air. It's, it's really a remarkable thing. Um, the picture on the left is Ava Rose. Uh, when she was less than a month old, I think, we had a friend take uh, some newborn pictures for us. And the picture on the right is her much more recently. Uh, she is 11 months old today. And this is what happens to a child who grows up over the course of most of a year and moves from milk to solid food. Uh, she started out just on milk, but quickly, especially in the last few months as more teeth have been coming in, her plate and the volume that she is uh, devouring, and I use the word devouring intentionally, every day, is increasing, it seems, almost daily. Uh, it, it, most days lately, it seems like she's eating more than any of the other uh, three kids. And so this is what happens, right? They grow up. They grow up too fast. She's sitting up on her own. She's crawling all over the place. She's talking. Uh, I feel like she'll be walking any day now. And so as children grow and mature, we see these changes, obviously. Now, infants, babies, are cute right? I put that up there for a reason. I wanted to soften you up a little bit before we got into the, into the text today. But spiritual babies are not so cute, particularly ones who ought to be more mature than they are. And that's the point of this text today, that as you're growing and maturing in Christ, or as you ought to be growing and maturing in Christ, when we see signs of spiritual infancy in ourselves, it ought to concern us. And that's what motivates the uh, author of Hebrews here in dealing with his audience. He's dealing with people who ought to be farther along in Christ but who aren't. They're showing signs of spiritual infancy and immaturity. And so we're going to consider that in Hebrews 5.11, and I'm going to read through chapter 6, verse 6. Look with me in Hebrews. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Again, verses 4 through 6 contain some of the most controversial and debated verses in Scripture, and we're going to get there uh, towards the end today. But the reason I picked the passage that I did today is because I think It captures, uh, especially on the front end, the context of what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us. If we had two hours for the sermon, I would probably have continued preaching further on in chapter 6. But for the sake of time today, 5.11 through 6.6 is the section that we're going to look at. Before we delve into the text, I want to briefly talk about the context of the book of Hebrews as a whole. Uh, Summer 2016, we preached a sermon series through the book of Hebrews. It certainly wasn't exhaustive. Uh, But it dealt with the primary theme in the book of Hebrews, and that's the absolute supremacy and superiority of Jesus in, above, and over all things. Uh, The book of Hebrews, if if you read through it and don't get that theme, then you haven't properly read and understood the book of Hebrews, and you need to go back to it again. And so that was our goal with that sermon series a summer or two ago, to deal with the supremacy and uh, sufficiency of Jesus and his sacrifice. So in the first two chapters of Hebrews, the author, who we don't know for sure who it is, tells us of Jesus' sonship, his deity, his majesty, his atoning work, his superiority to angels, and the necessity of his incarnation. In chapter 3, we see Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapter 4, he's superior to Joshua and the rest that Joshua provided for the Israelites. In chapter 5, Jesus is our superior high priest, the one mediator between God and man who offers up the sinless sacrifice of himself that's necessary for our salvation that we've already sung about this morning. And that gets us to the passage today where our author makes a marked transition from these high-level theological views that he's taking us to and for the first time, it seems, switches his attention from Jesus to his hearers. He's apparently frustrated with them, like a parent who wants to see their child grow up, mature, and become more responsible. The author of Hebrews loves these people, and he wants to see them grow and mature in their faith, and he's discouraged by the marks of spiritual infancy in people who ought to be farther along. So who are these people to whom he's writing? It's a Jewish Christian audience, we believe. The many references to the Old Testament lend credence to that belief, and many scholars believe that his audience may have included former priests. So they were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. They had a basis for understanding the fulfillment of those Scriptures by Jesus the Messiah. They had apparently been baptized into his church and given the means by which to grow. 
And so the passage underscores the absolute importance of God's word in the lives of believers. Christians who neglect the word and neglect the church of Jesus are going to stagnate in their growth and not mature in the way they ought to. So the first point today from our passage is this. Christian growth includes learning, teaching, and discernment. Christian growth includes learning, teaching, and discernment. So the author has been telling us about how great Jesus is, how superior he is to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to the priesthood, to the sacrifices. Every element of the old covenant, Jesus simultaneously fulfills and is superior to. But he stops here and says, there's more I want to tell you. I want to go deeper and farther here, but I can't. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing He says that they've been Christians long enough and they have the means by which to grow in such a way that they ought to be teaching others already. But they're still in a place where they still need to be taught the basics. So uh, to illustrate this, I was thinking of uh, a student. I don't know uh, what what level mathematics uh, our our students are in, in uh, middle and high school these days, but think about a student who, uh, who ought to be doing more advanced math like calculus and providing tutoring help to others but who's still struggling with addition and subtraction. In the context of this letter, think of a child with teeth coming in who ought to be eating solid food, but who can only stomach milk still. That's the picture of what's going on with the recipients of Hebrews. They've been Christians long enough and have the means to grow in such a way that they ought to be further along the path of life. And when the author pauses, he tells them, there are things I want to teach you, but it's becoming difficult because you have become dull of hearing. And so a mark of Christian growth, unsurprisingly, then, is a deepening knowledge of Jesus, which leads to a deepening love for Jesus. The author wants to go further with them, teaching them about his greatness and majesty, but he's prevented from doing so because of their spiritual immaturity. The good news is that through the Spirit of God and his enabling us to apprehend the Scriptures, we're reminded of Jesus' teaching. We're brought to conviction of sin. And like Jeremy preached last week, we're gifted for the purpose of So there is a solution that God graciously provides to our spiritual immaturity, and we'll talk more about that as we go today. But for now, the author of Hebrews unashamedly concludes that Christians can, ought to, and must grow. Specifically here, we're talking about growth in the knowledge and use of God's Word. In this passage, there are several references that the author makes to the Word of God. They're dull of hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the Scriptures. They ought to be teachers by now. Teachers of what? The Word of God. But they still need to be taught. To be taught what? The basic principles of the oracles of God. He says that those who live on milk are unskilled. Unskilled in what? In the Word of Righteousness. He's going to talk about some foundational things from the Scriptures today and then exhort them to grow beyond where they are. Just as the human body is not designed to live off milk forever, so God does not intend for the Christian never to move beyond the basics of the Christian faith. And as we get into chapter 6, we'll see more about what the author means by that. For now, he goes on to say that Christians, maturing Christians, will be givers and not just takers. There's no need for you to feel guilty sitting and listening to sermons every week 
attending Sunday school every week and Wednesday night Bible studies where you take the position of a learner. There's no shame in that. Hebrews tells us in this passage that we just read that learning is essential to Christian growth and vitality. But just like a sponge will sour if it's filled up and never wrung out, so Christians' capacity to grow and learn and mature and minister to others will diminish and be dwarfed if they are not sharing what they have learned with others. We're not talking about forsaking learning. We're talking about taking our learning and then sharing that with others for their own benefit. We will become increasingly dull, unfruitful, and ineffective if we constantly receive instruction but never reach the point of sharing that with others. And so if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are meant to be a vessel for God's word, carrying it to them for their good and for the glory of God. Consider how blessed you have been by other believers who have grown and matured and shared and invested in you. And then consider how God encourages you to do the same with others. This first section ends with a diagnosis of the problem and some good news. Look in verses 13 and 14 again. They identify a main impediment to Christian growth, which is a lack of consistent and serious attention to God's word that prevents our growth and maturation in the same way that a diet of only milk is unhealthy and insufficient for a growing child. But because it, it, it identifies this problem, the good news is we're confronted with this barrier, but then also its logical solution. We're provided with a strategy to make grace-based and spirit-empowered changes that will have tangible results, according to verse 3 of chapter 6. Verse 14 tells us that maturing Christians are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so the more time that we spend prayerfully and carefully considering God's word as individuals, as families, in the church, and the more we faithfully seek to minister those truths to other people, the more we will have wisdom and discernment to know what is right. And so if you're here this morning praying for wisdom for a particular situation, if you have an important decision to make or a situation that you don't know how to handle, understand on the basis of Hebrews 5 and 6 that one of the most important things that you can do to sharpen your powers of discernment and understanding right and wrong and the way that you ought to go is through a healthy diet and exercise of the Word of God. Prayerfully and through the power of the Spirit, spending time in God's Word regularly consistently and seeking to obey what God reveals there through the word by the power of the spirit. The spirit of God will never lead you to do or believe something that is contrary to the scriptures. And so it's crucial that we grow in our love for and understanding of the Bible if we want to walk in God's will. We're serious about encouraging you to, to take one of these Bible reading plans and prayer guides and make use of it consistently because we want you to avail yourself of the God-ordained means of spiritual growth and vitality. We're serious about encouraging you to come here to hear God's word preached and taught and to sing God's word together because we need to be taught by others. We're serious about encouraging you to participate in the life of a small group where others can pour into you and help you along the way because we need each other to grow. We're serious about calling you to use your gifts to serve in the church because ministering to others is a mark of spiritual maturity and health. We want you to be able to distinguish between right and wrong and make good choices in your daily life based on that because it honors the Lord and it's good for you. These things are important to us as a church because of our love for Jesus and for one another. So one of the most practical things you can do today, if you haven't already, is avail yourself of something like this that directs your attention to the scriptures every day, that directs you to prayer every day. 
We can expect that God will grant growth when we take advantage of the means that he graciously provides. The second point is this. Christian growth moves beyond the basics. Christian growth moves beyond the basics. Look again at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The author says he wants to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to deeper things for which his hearers are not yet ready. And he shares what he means when he says the elementary doctrine of Christ from which we are to move beyond. Repentance of sin, faith in God, instruction about washings or baptism, the laying on of hands, which is probably a reference to identifying and installing church leaders, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Each time I come to this passage, I'm, I'm amazed that this is what he calls the elementary doctrine of Christ. Repentance and faith and baptism and church leadership and the resurrection and the coming judgment are foundational, essential in the Christian life. And yet he calls us to more, to go beyond, to not see them as insufficient or unimportant, but foundational. And he expects us to keep growing and move beyond the basics. Let's think of the foundation terminology that the author uses here in verse 1. When I was in college, my parents lived in the Huntsville, Alabama area, and I'd go home frequently to get my clothes washed, to visit my parents. And when I did that, getting off Highway 72 in uh, Madison, I'd turn north on this little two-lane road up towards my parents' house, and along the way, they cleared several lots for homes to be built. Right there up on the road, you couldn't miss them, you didn't have to drive into a neighborhood to see them. And... Uh, I don't know about you, I, I enjoy seeing homes that are under construction and kind of watching them over time, seeing with the site prep and the foundation and the walls and the structure begin to go up. And over the course of many months, you see it go from a blank foundation to a fully constructed house that's ready for someone to live in. And each time I would go in this season, I'd see a little work being done on these homes. It began with the site prep, they're clearing the land and getting it ready so you see equipment coming up and trees being removed and then the foundations are poured and so there's two or three neat little foundations next to one another and uh, each time I would go back I would look for the progress that was made on these homes and not very long into the process after the foundations had been poured I noticed no progress was made each time I went. I'd go back and expecting to see walls up, and it's still just a foundation. Nobody working. Gradually, the equipment and the materials that were already there were taken away, and all that was left was three blank foundations on which homes were never constructed. Now, I'm not an engineer or an architect, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, and I can say with confidence that those foundations were essential to a home going up on them and not falling down. You need a good foundation for a stable structure, but your house is not complete after the foundation is poured. You need walls and a roof. You're going to want plumbing and electricity. You're going to need floors and doors and windows. You start with the foundation, the essential things, and then you keep building. The author of Hebrews is looking at houses that have been under construction for some time now, 
And he's expecting to see more progress, but he's only seeing foundations. There's materials scattered around, but the builders have sat down and quit working. And what's worse, they ought to be far enough along in their own home building that they can pause their work or continue in their work and assist others in theirs who aren't as far along. But they can't because the progress on their own home has stalled because they've quit working. And so the problem is contagious. It becomes a cycle of immaturity where people aren't growing and then they aren't able to help others grow which continues the process of stagnation, which doesn't just impact one person, but impacts many. So let's be clear about this when we talk about these foundational doctrines. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus are absolutely necessary for salvation. Baptism is commanded as a means of identifying publicly with Jesus and his church and coming under their authority. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to the hope of the Christian through whom we have the hope of our own resurrection. The church needs leaders and we know there will be a judgment where God's justice is ultimately satisfied and his people will experience vindication and salvation and eternal life and his enemies will experience eternal punishment. We're not dogging the fundamentals of the faith by saying we need to go further any more than we're not insulting the foundation of a home by insisting that a structure go up on it. And so what the author is saying is that if these basic foundational doctrines are the extent of your belief and understanding, then you have a solid foundation, but the structure is incomplete. It's time to go deeper in the Word of God with the people of God and through the Spirit of God to grow and mature. Verse 3 encourages us that we should expect this to be the case for those who make use of the means that God has graciously provided in His Word and in His church. So now we come to verses 4 through 6. And the reason, again, I preached the section that I did is because I think it best captures the preceding context which directly informs what's going on in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. The chapter and verse designations here were not added until the 1500s. They're not original to the text. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're not authoritative for us. And sometimes I find them to be placed in unfortunate spots that help us to see a line at the end of a chapter and think it always means the author is starting a new section, a new thought that's completely unrelated to what is coming after. And that's not always the case. In the case of Hebrews 5 and 6, if you separate chapter 6 from the end of chapter 5, I think you're going to miss something of what the author is trying to communicate to us. And so the third point is this. Christians can't start over, but we can keep going. We can't start over, but we can keep going. Look again at verses 4 through 6. He begins by saying something is impossible. It's impossible to restore certain people to repentance who have fallen away. And these are people who have said to have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come. And it's said to be impossible because they are crucifying the Son of God again and holding Him up to contempt. As you read through Hebrews, you can understand why this would be such a serious accusation, because the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus' sacrifice is all-sufficient and it's once for all. So the thought of Jesus needing to be re-crucified flies in the face of everything the author of Hebrews is telling us about Jesus' atoning work for our sins. 
As we read during our uh, time of singing, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, according to Hebrews. But Jesus' all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice is completely sufficient to take away sins. So the thought of Jesus needing to be crucified again is, uh, is blasphemous. It's harmful. It's contemptuous to think that Jesus' sacrifice is insufficient. And so these people, what they are doing equates to seeking to crucify Jesus again to their own harm, it says. And so this is a pretty serious accusation, especially as you, as you read it in the context of the book as a whole. So there's some things that we need to come to terms with in this text to help us to properly understand it. We need to understand who these people are. We need to understand if they are Christians, and the Bible is teaching us that they have somehow lost their salvation. Are they Christians who didn't lose their salvation but have somehow forfeited eternal rewards through some sort of unrepentant moral failings? Are they merely pretenders who were never saved in the first place and whose apostasy revealed this to be the case? Or is there something else going on here? Now, I would imagine most of us in this room hold one of maybe two or three views about this text. I don't think we're going to get really anybody willing to stand up and say, well, it's clear Hebrews 6 teaches that you can lose your salvation. We reject that outright. Jesus tells us that we are secure in his hand and those to whom he has given eternal life, he will raise up on the last day. Our assurance and security as believers isn't in our own ability to persevere to the end or to sustain ourselves, but in Jesus' keeping power. And so we reject the idea that we can be redeemed and then lost again. See John 10, 28 and 29 and John 6, 39 for some examples of this. I also don't think this section of Hebrews is teaching us that these are people living some sort of carnal Christian life in open, unrepentant sin and moral failing. It just does not seem apparent from the text. There are passages in the scripture that would warn us against that kind of living, but I don't believe that Hebrews 6 is one of them. It seems in context, as you read the end of chapter 5, to be dealing with their ability to hear, understand, apply, and minister God's word to others. And as you read the description of these people in verses 4 through 6, it's really difficult to have a convincing argument that the author does not believe these people are Christians. If you look in those verses, you see that he says they have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's word and the power of the age to come. Later on in Hebrews 6, he tells them he's convinced that they are believers, that he's seen evidence of their love and faith and service, and that it continues to this day. And so the author believes that they are Christians. He talks to them as if they are Christians. And the warning here, I believe, is for Christians. For too long with this passage, I've come to it and said, well, I don't believe you can lose your salvation, so I reject that but I'm not really sure how to handle it. So I'm going to focus on other passages that I understand better to the neglect of this one. And if anybody asks me about it, I'm going to pretend my phone is ringing and we'll have that conversation later. I've really had a hard time dealing with this, but uh, I've, I've made use of some resources that Pastor Michael has provided with me and some commentaries, and I think I've arrived at a place that is faithful to the context, that is faithful to the New Testament and the larger teaching in Scripture, and that also is consistent with with early church practice. And one of the keys to that, I believe, is understanding the word that is translated fallen away. 
The issue is solved partly by understanding the author's word choice. The word in Greek that is translated fallen away here is parapipto, and it's not the normal Greek word that's translated apostasy in the Bible. This is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word is used, and in all of its usages in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it never means apostasy there either. So this word is not used in Old or New Testament to mean apostasy, which is one reason to throw out the idea of a believer losing their salvation, because that's not really what's going on in this passage if you look into the language. Allen, in the New American Commentary on Hebrews, says that a faithful and careful study of the Greek shows that falling away here, for those reasons, is not properly understood as apostasy. So what does this word mean? If you get a Greek dictionary out, you'll see that the word means to turn aside, to fall beside, or to fall on something. If you think of the Christian life as a race, as the Bible does at times, then think of someone who is on the path, who's walking or running, and who falls along the way. It isn't that they were never on the right path, and they were just pretending to be. And it isn't that they were on the right path and somehow got off the right path and on to the wrong one. They were on the right path, genuinely and legitimately, but they aren't continuing on the good path that they are on. They've fallen along or beside the way. They haven't apostatized. They have stagnated in their growth, and they need to get going, which is exactly the point of Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14 that we considered first. So part of the problem in our understanding of this passage in Hebrews is word choice. The word that is in your Bible uh, most likely uh, for parapipto is fallen away. And if your Bible has headings that were later added, even above verse 11, mine says this is a warning against apostasy. So translation error and word choice, I believe, has contributed to some of our misunderstanding about this passage. Many modern English translations wrongly communicate apostasy when something else is in view. Look with me again in verse 2, because there's a word there in Greek, and this is the last Greek word we'll talk about today. The Greek word that's translated instruction is didache. And this is actually the title of a book, an early Christian work that predates even some of our Gospels. It's not part of the canon. It's not authoritative for us. It is not Scripture. But it was a piece of work that some early churches used to prepare uh, new believers for baptism and instruct them in doctrine. Theology professor Michael Spiegel and Hebrews scholar F.F. F. Bruce both connect Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 to that book, the Didache. It sets up the idea of two paths. There is a path of life and a path of death. And those who choose the path of life through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus have set out on this path and identify themselves with Jesus in baptism. Apparently the term enlightened that's used in this passage of Hebrews was an early Christian term for baptism. So the author of Hebrews is talking to people who have turned from sin, have trusted in Jesus, who have set out on the path of life, who have been baptized. He says they've tasted the heavenly gift, which is probably a reference to the Lord's Supper. And it says they've shared in the Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's Word and the powers of the age to come, which scholars believe are various references to the blessings and privileges that come through membership in the church. We share in the blessings of the indwelling Spirit of God through whom we're able to taste the goodness of God's Word and experience God's power in our lives. And these are things that happen along the path of life, following Jesus 
in the lives of true Christians. So the expectation and the teaching here is that these are Christian church members who have started out on the path of life, but who've quit running the race. As the end of chapter 5 puts it, they're spiritual infants who need to grow and mature in knowledge and ministry and discernment. As chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 put it, they need to move beyond the basic doctrines of the faith and keep building on their good foundations. Consider this quote from Spiegel. In light of this, the writer to Hebrews appears to be drawing on the path of life image found in ancient Christian baptismal instructions. In essence, he's saying this, you've been enlightened, baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a sign of repentance, and therefore initiated into the church, partaking of its full benefits and learning all the fundamentals. You started walking down the path of life, but you've become dull. You're acting like a trainee again, like somebody who needs to be instructed prior to baptism. You should be teaching and baptizing, but you're acting like you need somebody to teach and baptize you. But that's impossible. Once a person has been enlightened and gone through the baptism of repentance, if they fall aside from the path, they can't go back again to the baptism of repentance and start all over. The exhortation then is clear. Get back on the path of life and move toward maturity. You can't be converted again, so start acting like a convert. So the position that I take on this passage is that what is impossible is for you to start the Christian life over as if you were a new convert. And that's what I believe is the warning for trying to crucify Jesus again. If you are a believer, if you have gospel foundation in your life, but you have the symptoms of spiritual infancy, then what you don't need to do is try to repour the foundation and start all over. You don't need to act and live as if you need to be converted again and brought back through that process of initiation into the church through publicly identifying with Jesus in baptism and giving a profession of faith as if it were for the first time. It's impossible to do that. Jesus' death and sacrifice for sins is once for all, and your identification with him also ought to be. Not trying to start over. The third point is Christians can't start over, but we can keep going. So if there is a foundation there, then the solution is not trying to pour another foundation, but to see structure go up on the good foundation that's already there. As we conclude, let's consider what we do with this passage in terms of applying it. Let's ask ourselves the tough questions about our own appetites for God's Word. Are we regularly in the Scriptures? If we're following Jesus, are we moving beyond the basic doctrines and into deeper waters? Are we taking in not only taking in a healthy diet of the Scriptures, but are we exercising that through ministry to others? Is there a structure growing up on the gospel foundation in our lives? Are we eating the solid food of the mature? And as the end of chapter 5 puts it, are we growing in our discernment of good and evil on the basis of God's Word through constant practice? So if you are a Christian here today and you're convicted of a lack of spiritual growth and maturity, then what you don't need to do is make another profession of faith get baptized again in case the first one didn't stick, and try to start the Christian life over as if you were just beginning in Christ. Jesus was crucified once for all, and if you're his, that sacrifice has already been applied to you. So don't treat that sacrifice contemptuously, trying to start the Christian life over again. If you have the good gospel foundation, but also the symptoms of spiritual infancy, then you need to avail yourself of the God-ordained means of growth, like we've talked about today, and get going. The truth is we've got to have each other in this process because infants need help feeding themselves. The picture here is all of us growing together 
and helping one another along the path. It's not just one home under construction, but a whole neighborhood that's going up. And we're co-laboring to see the work done. So if you've fallen beside or fallen along the way, then it's time to get up and get going and expect that in the church there are others here ready to come alongside and help you. If you're running well, praise the Lord. Keep going. Don't stop. And look for others who have fallen along the way. Help them up. Help dust them off. And help them along. So let's get in the Word together. Let's pray together. Let's serve together for the glory of God. Take one of those prayer guides with you. It has us in the same scriptures every week, reading the Bible throughout the whole year and praying through them together. Imagine the impact that we can have as a church, as families, and even as individuals as we spend regular and consistent time in God's Word. Let's see Him use us to advance the kingdom and share the gospel near and far as we take advantage of these things that He graciously provides to us. Now, some of you may not be on the path of life. If you've heard the Word today and you're convicted of the fact that you have not repented of sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, then you don't have a foundation. You aren't a spiritual infant. You're spiritually dead. But there is good news because God is in the business of raising the dead and granting life to those who come to Him in repentance of sin and faith in His Son, Jesus, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who was sacrificed for sins once for all, a completely sufficient atoning sacrifice. He rose from the dead in power and glory and majesty, which is a guarantee of our resurrection in Him and our protection from the coming judgment. Those essential doctrines, we don't move beyond them in the sense that we uh, cease to give God thanks and praise for them, but we grow past them in the sense of we see a structure go up on that foundation through the Word of God, through the people of God. And so if you are not on the path of life today, then God calls you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And by God's grace, you will be saved. You'll be put on the path of life with a firm foundation. And from there, you should identify with Jesus and his church through baptism and membership and begin growing in Christ in the ways that we've seen today already. You will start out on milk, but by God's grace, you will get to the solid food. You'll begin to experience the blessings and privileges of the church because in Christ, through the Spirit, you will have been adopted into the family of God that is here to love and serve you and to be loved and to be served by you. And so wherever you are today, I would encourage you to take the next few moments to reflect on this passage, a call to maturity, a call to growth, a warning against idleness and stagnation. And so at this time, I'd like to invite Luke and the praise team up for a final song and the ushers up to receive this morning's offering. And I would encourage you to take this time to reflect on the word that we've heard this morning and how you need to properly respond to it. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We know it is a grace-based, ordained means that you intend for us to have a regular diet and exercise of. Help us, God, to have the self-control, the discipline to spend consistent, regular, careful, and prayerful time in your word as individuals, as families, as a church, and that we would grow in our ability to share that with others. 
God, help us who ought to be farther along. Help me who ought to be farther along. Help us to help one another who have fallen along the way. Help us to serve in a way that benefits your people, that benefits our communities, and even to the ends of the world. God, help us to move beyond and grow beyond the basics. Help us to not be satisfied or content with where we are, but through your Spirit, God, help us to seek and desire to grow, to know you more, to love you more, to obey you more fully, and to have joy in that. And God, warn us where we are idle. Send brothers and sisters to help us. And God, we know that God permitting, we will grow and mature in these ways. Thank you for this time that we've had to meet and gather together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.